Great to open up the Word with you this morning. And it's good to know that God's love has rescued us, isn't it? You can say it louder if you want. I don't think there's any words in the English language that carry with them more pain than the words betray, forsake, and deny. Betray, forsake, and deny. You hear those words, and probably except for the youngest kids among us, you have experienced those rejection words in real life situations. They're painful, and they're real. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he experienced these rejection words in real life situation. Three specific things that Jesus said would happen, happened. We've already looked at the betrayal that Judas brought. We've already seen all the disciples forsake him and run away. And now we're going to see Peter deny him. The denier who denied that he would deny him will now deny his Lord. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 26 and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at Christ forsaken by men. The false trial, the faithless denials. What we're really going to see here is a split screenshot to... Scenes simultaneously happening will look one after the other. We're going to read Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57 and down to verse 74. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ! Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. 
And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly to you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Lord, in the context of our two busy lives and a lack of peace and true happiness probably all far too often, we need you and a word from you and a touch on our lives today. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive it, hands and feet that are quick to do your will. And we will give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. You ever been driving on the highway and you see a horrible wreck? Cars and people strewn all over the place. We've driven Highway 40 across country so many times. Sad to say I've seen too many of those. But like a twisted, hideous, awful, multi-car wreck on a highway, mankind's sinfulness is on full display in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. Every gospel writer records it. Man wouldn't have put it this way. This is an undiluted, full-strength gospel. If, if, man was up, if, if it was up to us, we would have left this part out. The sinfulness of man. The point I want to make today is this, that we must grasp the seriousness of our radical sinfulness if we are going to see Jesus as our only hope. If we're going to see Jesus as more than someone who just makes good people a little bit better. If we're going to see Jesus as someone who takes lost sinners, bound for hell, dead in sin and makes them alive, we are going to have to grasp the seriousness, the gravity, the, the awfulness of our radical sinfulness. That must take place. I want to present to you today three sobering truths that I see in this passage. Three sobering truths as we look at this split-screen 
picture where you have two simultaneous events happening at the same time. Jesus being tried at Caiaphas' house and Peter out in the courtyard of that house denying Jesus. The first sobering truth is that we are radically sinful. We are radically sinful. We wouldn't have put this part in. But it's, re- it's seen in this passage, first in the false trial, start at verse 57. And there's all sorts of things that are wrong with this trial, all sorts of things that, that weren't in place, that should have been in place if they were going to follow their own rules. It was late at night, it was after midnight, there, there weren't true witnesses, there's all sorts of things that were wrong about this. But what you see, they had seized Jesus... And Caiaphas, the high priest, is there. Now, John says that they, they first went to Annas, who was the high priest. Annas had been the high priest for a long time, and five of his sons or sons-in-laws had become high priests after him. Caiaphas was one of them. But it's kind of like when you uh, call a former president the president. Uh, Annas had been the high priest, but at this point, Caiaphas was the high priest, And they went to his palace. They went to his home. It would have been a very large compound. He was was a very uh, well-to-do man. And so this would have been a big place with multiple courtyards and multiple residences. And it says that the scribes and the elders had gathered. The Sanhedrin, the 70. Might have been all of the 70. Might have been about 25 of them. But either way, they had gathered for the purpose to put Jesus to death. To sentence him to death. They had decided this beforehand. That's why you would call this a a kangaroo court. It's already been decided. They're going to set aside the law. They're going to set aside what is right. They're going to do what they want to do. Verse 58 tells us that Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard. And then Peter is left there. So now we're looking at the scene at Caiaphas' house. And this trial that Jesus is going to endure. This first trial. He's going to have a civil trial and a religious tri- trial. And, but this is kind of a, um, a trial before the trial, kind of a grand jury type of a thing, where you come in and basically just um, settle some matters before you get on to the bigger issue. Verse 59 says, The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Uh, the Greek construction there literally means they kept seeking false testimony. They would try to find one, and someone would come up and tell a story, and then someone else would tell a story, and they wouldn't jive. They wouldn't match. Everyone was lying, and it was showing. Finally, two people get up, and, and they say, um, well, you know, this man, and they twist what Jesus had said, but he says, this man says, I'm able to destroy the temple... And rebuild it in three days. And they're talking about a physical building. And they're saying, he said that. He said that. And he had been talking about his own body. He had been talking about going to the cross. He had been talking about his impending death. So they twist his words. And, and basically the high priest stands up, verse 62. And he says, to Jesus. I mean, by the way, this is the biggest face-off in the New Testament. Biggest face-off. Here is Caiaphas and Jesus face-to-face and Caiaphas basically spewing in Jesus' face. And he says this, Have you no answer to make? 
Jesus is standing there silent and he says, don't you have an answer to make? What is it that they're testifying against you? Verse 63 tells us, Jesus remained silent. Did not say a word. And so the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. What he is doing is putting Jesus under oath. Now Jesus had said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't do that. Don't take a rash oath like this. But he basically puts Jesus under oath. You would do it by claiming God's name in the midst of this and saying, now you have to tell me. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now remember why he is being asked these questions. Because they wanted to put him to death. They didn't want the truth. They couldn't handle the truth. They wanted to kill him. Jesus answers. Verse, look at verse 64. Jesus' answer is, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. At that answer, Caiaphas tears his clothes. That is a sign of grief, but he wasn't grieved. This was all a, a farce. This was a facade. This was fake. And he tore his robes. And he said, You have heard the blasphemy. He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? Well, it's the judgment they came to before they ever came to the house. We're going to kill him. So they say, He deserves death. And then verse 67 and 68. They should be hard words for us to read. They spit in the face of Jesus. You're going to disown someone if you're going to, if you're going to uh, radically uh, push them away. You're going to spit in their face. Can you think of anything worse that someone could do to repudiate you, to, to say uh, you're, you're worth nothing to me? They spit in his face and they, they are slugging him. They're punching him. And it says that some slapped him. And they're, as they're doing so, they're mocking him and say, Hey, prophesy. Tell us who did it. If you're so strong and mighty, why don't you tell us? They didn't believe that he was who he says he was. They did not believe the truth. What's very interesting about this is that Caiaphas is accusing Jesus of blasphemy when Caiaphas himself is blaspheming. Caiaphas is blaspheming. But what's an interesting thing to contrast with this blasphemy that he is uttering in the face of God incarnate is a prophecy that he spoke. Go with me over to John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, with a parallel passage, in this setting, what you see Verse 14. They had led him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
I want you to go back to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. You know that Jesus raising Lazarus led to the cross, right? That him raising someone from the dead, many believed, but many wanted to kill him when they found out what Jesus had done. Verse 47 of John 11 says that the chief priests and the the Pharisees gathered the council, the same Sanhedrin that was at Caiaphas' house, and said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. They cared more about their homes and their palaces and their money and their strength than they did about God's truth. They said, we got to do something about this guy because the way we live and what we've got is going to be done away with if we don't. What do we do? They said, uh, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, look at verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you see what happened here? This is uh, exhibit A, classic example of God making the wrath of man to praise him. Caiaphas is is blaspheming. Caiaphas is hating Jesus. You know that every time Caiaphas is mentioned in the context of Jesus, it's, it's hating on him. It is, it is animosity towards Jesus. But God used him to prophesy the gospel. Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Not just to bring the Jews in, but also the Gentiles. The mission of the Gentiles is, is in, embedded there in, in the prophecy that Caiaphas spoke. God used a vile, evil, wicked man to prophesy the gospel. Contrast that with this blasphemy right in Jesus' face. This first point is that we are radically sinful. It's very easy for us to say Caiaphas was radically sinful. It was much harder for us to say that we are radically sinful. But to see Peter and his faithless denial reminds us once again that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we too are guilty before a holy God. Look at verse 69. Now here's the second screenshot here it's like when you're watching a movie and there's there's the same thing going on in two different screens on on the on the in the picture now you cut to peter simultaneously as that other trial is going on peter is sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl comes up to him and says to him you also were with jesus the galilean what did peter do peter denied it before them all Now, it's interesting what he says. I do not know what you mean. He is saying, I'm ignorant of this. I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's an outright, bold-faced lie. I don't know what you're talking about. What? 
So he is feigning ignorance, first of all. That's the first denial. I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it, but this time with an oath. So now he goes against Jesus and kind of sides with Caiaphas, if you, if you think about it. He's making an oath. He's basically promising on God's name that he's telling the truth. I do not know the man. A bigger lie than the first. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm ignorant of this. Now I don't even know who he is. Peter doesn't know who Jesus is? After a little while, the bystanders come up. One of the parallel passages says it's one of the relatives of the, 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 the dude that he cut the ear off of. And he said, they say, you are one of them because your accent gives you away. I go to the East Coast, my accent gives me away. I go to the South, my accent gives me away. They think I'm from the, the place where all the fruits and nuts are from, right? Where, where we're going to fall into the ocean. That's what they say about the West Coast. I can't make a fake accent to sound like I'm from Boston or Tennessee or, or somewhere else in the world. I'm from Southern California. So my accent gives me away. They're saying to Peter, the more you talk. You notice that we, we like to put our feet in our mouth, right? The more Peter puts his foot in his mouth, the more he gives himself away. And the farther away from Jesus he gets. Because this time... He doesn't just do it with an oath. He begins, it says here, to invoke a curse on himself. What that means is that he said, before God, strike me down dead if I'm not telling the truth. He's invoking a curse on himself. And he's swearing. All sorts of profanities are spewing out of his mouth. Peter, This impetuous one has painted himself into a corner that he cannot get out of. I don't know what you're talking about. I I don't know him. And then, let me die if I'm telling a lie. Poke a needle in my eye and all that kind of stuff. Stepping on a cracker and all that. Whatever he was doing, he did it all, okay? It was all bad. It was a faithless denial. Go back with me to Matthew 16. Let's just see what Peter was like in a, in a better moment it, when he was at his, at his tip-top shape, when he was at his fighting weight. What was he like when he was, when he was in his right mind? Matthew 16. Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, you give us a sign, Christ. And Jesus is like, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, they think you are either John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus says, but who do you? He's asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those words 
or like writing out your own death sentence. Like, kill me now, enemies of Christ. This is what I believe. And Jesus says, you know what? You didn't figure that out on your own. (laughs) Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. From that point on, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to die. And then I will be raised. Excuse me, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, then I'll be buried, and then I'll be raised. Right after Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, guess what else he did? Want to show the radical sinfulness of man? Just look with me at Matthew 16, 21. Jesus told them, he's showing them, that they, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, on the third day be raised. And Peter takes Jesus aside. The same one that he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, you're my Savior, you're, you're God incarnate. He takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Jesus, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. And what does Jesus call Peter at that moment? Satan. That's the worst thing you can call someone. It was very descriptive though. Jesus said, you are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, Peter, we are radically sinful. It's not just Peter. It's not just Caiaphas. It's you and me and everyone else we know. This is us. In this scene, everyone's seeking after their own interests. Caiaphas is wanting to keep his palace. Caiaphas wants to keep his gig at the temple, fleecing the people and getting more money than he should for for animals to sacrifice. Everyone's seeking after their own interests. Peter's saying, you know what? I don't know what, what you're talking about. He sees what's going on. He hears what's going on up in the courtyard, in the other courtyard, and he's down in this courtyard and he's hearing what's going on. Peter, who said, I will die with you, is now saying, I don't know who who that guy is who's getting spit on and slugged and slapped and mocked. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us exactly what our problem is. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us, each one of us has turned to his own way. There's a way that seems right unto man, but it's the way of death. We've all gone in onto the avenue of death and we keep traveling and sometimes we put our foot on the gas pedal and go as fast as we can. That's Peter in his faithless denial. Depravity. Depravity. Mentioned it briefly last week. Depravity of man. That every faculty of humanity is fallen. We're, we're infected by, it, by sin in every part. Under the curse. Deserving God's wrath. That's us. That's all of humanity. Unless you want to soft pedal it and say, well, you know, we're innocent until we commit our first sin. We are not innocent until we commit our first sin. We are condemned sinful people from the moment our lives begin. Even the cuddly little babies. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. 
before we're even born we're sinful and we deliberately go astray as soon as we learn how as soon as we figure it out we start running so this first point that Jesus that, that excuse me that we are radically sinful must lead us to the second sobering truth which is Jesus is our only hope of salvation Jesus is our only hope of salvation you look at him in this scene this kangaroo court this false trial and what do you see Jesus as absolute truth go back to Matthew 26 and verse 64 Jesus begins to talk first of all he's silent but he begins to talk everyone else telling lies and he says you have said so said what that he is the Christ the son of God he says I tell you those words I tell you it's like the sermon on the mount you have heard that it was said but I tell you here is Jesus authoritative absolute truth now I'm going to tell you something you got me on trial but you're going to be on trial you held, you're holding me captive right now, but you're captive in your sins. Here is absolute truth in the midst of everyone else telling lies. What we also see is that Jesus is the righteous judge. If there's anything embedded in this passage that would just, would just open this passage up to us and, and help us to see the clear vista of the glory of God in Christ, it would be this line. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is he saying? Was this some cipher code that they've got to, you know, figure out and and figure out what it's about? This is not hard to figure out. And they knew exactly what he was referring to. He's referring to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Here is Jesus ruling in the midst of his enemies, as Psalm 110, verse 2 says. Even when he was silent, he was ruling over them. They thought he, they were putting him on trial. He's putting them on trial right here. Here's what he says. I'm going to be coming in the clouds of heaven. That's what you're going to see. Shades of Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and a scepter to rule. What Jesus is saying to them at this point is, you think you're my judge. I will be yours. He's telling them, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to be your judge. You're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven as God the judge. This is big. Of course they want to kill him now, even more than they did before. But here's Jesus serving God's interests, not man's. He is serving the redeemed interests, but not sinful man's interests. Isaiah 53, 6, the last part of that verse says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All our sin, all our putrid lies were laid on Jesus. And it can only lead us to one thing if we go go the right way. To dependence on the only one that can give our souls hope of life. 
It's what is called a monergistic view of salvation. If you're not familiar with that term monergism, you need to become familiar with it. It means God-centered. You need to have a God-centered view of salvation. Plenty of people will say, you know, here's a picture of salvation. I heard a pastor say this once. God casts one vote, Satan casts one vote, and you cast the deciding vote. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You are not the determiner of your salvation. You are not sovereign in salvation. And God and Satan don't have equal votes. A monergistic view of salvation says that man's salvation is accomplished by God alone, with no cooperation from man. God regenerates the heart. This is good news. This is gospel good news. God regenerates your heart, and you respond in faith and repentance. You do absolutely nothing. Dead in sin, unable to move. Look, we're not Humpty Dumpty. Remember Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Was he an egg or something like that? This is weird, right? And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again, right? Trying to glue them together and piece them together. You ever try to do that with an eggshell? It doesn't work, right? Well, we try as hard as we can. Well, let's put this thing back together. You know, I'm not that bad. We can do this. We can make ourselves stronger. You know, be the six million dollar man or something. Better than Humpty Dumpty, I guess, right? It's not what happened here. What happened is God took dead people, like the Valley of Dry Bones, and made them alive. Just like Lazarus. So we are radically sinful, very sobering truth. But as equally sobering as Jesus is our only hope, a lot of people are trying to find another way. I just heard from someone yesterday that says that the gospel is a load of something I'm not going to say right now. So what's the what's that third sobering truth? Everyone should repent and believe. But everyone doesn't that should sober the socks off of you everyone should repent and believe but everybody doesn't Caiaphas didn't always extreme hatred and animosity for Jesus on Caiaphas' part but let's take a look at Peter look at verse 74. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crows. Like the clock strikes 12 on Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, all I can tell you is every time Peter spoke, he got further away from Jesus. But it is always good to remember Jesus' words. As soon as Peter remembers Jesus' words, things start getting better. You know, I've, I've even taught before that, you know, he got re, recommissioned as a disciple when, when after the cross and after the resurrection and when he went fishing and Jesus made it official. I, I believe he made it official, but I believe that his recommissioning as a disciple actually started right here. Because here's what he did. It says he went out and he wept bitterly 
Now, Luke 22 tells us that Jesus looked at him right then. As soon as Peter remembered that, that Jesus had said these words, and he's coming to his senses, and the Word of God does that to us, does it not? It renews our minds. And it says that, that Jesus looked at Peter. If you think about how Caiaphas is... A palace and house would have been arranged. There would have been Peter kind of down below in a courtyard and Jesus up above. And he looked at him. What kind of look do you think it was? Man, there goes Peter again. You can't do anything right. Go to your room. Stand in the corner. Write your name 150 times. I don't know. What would he... No, you know what that look was? It was a look of love. It was a look of mercy. It was a look of grace. It was, I love you, Peter, and what I'm going to do very soon is going to take care of all your issues. Peter is bitterly weeping because he is repentant. Caiaphas wasn't. Judas sure wasn't. Next week we're going to look at Judas killing himself. But what happens is there's a humbler, bolder Peter that emerges after the resurrection. Who's the strongest New Testament writer when it comes to standing up for your faith? Arguably, it is Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts... Regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared. Because I wasn't. To, to give a, an answer, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame instead of how I was put to shame that night in that courtyard at Caiaphas' house. 1 Peter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. This should lead us to discipleship. A look at our depravity drives us to our dependence on Christ as our only hope of salvation and it should lead us to discipleship because God is most glorified by those who see Jesus as their ultimate joy and satisfaction. We who are in our crazy busy lives, we who are uh, finding it hard to have peace with people, we who are, are so burdened. God is most glorified by those who see Jesus as their ultimate joy and satisfaction and follow Him. Man, this, this scene, streams of filth coming out of the mouth of a high priest and a disciple. It shows us something hideous. It shows us something we do not want to look at. It, it shows us something we want to hide our faces from shows us the darkness of the human heart takes us to Isaiah 6 you know I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the Lord 
Let's pray. Lord God, for the second week in a row, we have uh, gotten up close and personal with our radical sinfulness, a fresh look in the mirror that we don't want to take. Lord, I want to praise you, though, that you and your perfect goodness and holiness are put on magnificent display when we see our sinfulness. Lord, it is our heart's desire to have rest from our crazy busy lives and our, our unrest. Lord, we want true happiness. We want true peace. And it's eluding us. And Lord, we know where the answer lies and it's too countercultural and counterintuitive for us to grasp at times. We really do need this view of you, Jesus, as our only hope. We, we, we praise you that you meet us at our point of need with pinpoint accuracy that your all-sufficiency is so evident. So Lord, may, may you give us grace uh, through your merciful look of love that leads to a sense of awestruck wonder at your grace. May we surrender to you.